Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Guy goes to the doctor and the doctor says, you have a really horrible contagious disease. The guy says, well, what, what do we do? He says, well, we're going to feed you a diet of pancakes, salami, and uh, pita bread. The guy says, well, will that cure it? He says, no, it's the only thing we can slide under the door. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And from APM, American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party Download, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from Pulitzer-winning humorist Dave Barry. That'll help break the ice. In a few minutes, reggae legend Jimmy Cliff suggests an eclectic party playlist. And later, actor Jessica Chastain gives us a pretty good reason not to eat pork. And if this all sounds familiar, that's because this is an encore broadcast of an episode we first aired last February... Back then, we were eating Valentine's candy, not Halloween candy, but we still started dinner parties with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. President Obama unveiled his plan to get America's undocumented immigrants closer to taking that oath. Wild weather rolled through the central and southern states, leaving a path of destruction behind. Senator John Kerry will be the next Secretary of State. Now for a story you might not have heard. We are speaking with Rehan Harmansi. She's deputy editor of the eagerly anticipated, but not yet quite released, food culture magazine called Modern Farmer. And Rehan, what story are you going to be talking about at dinner parties this weekend? Well, I'm actually going to be celebrating um, because the European Arachnid Society has just released their European Spider of the Year 2012. Um, oh, my gosh. And, I can't believe I missed that with the Golden yeah. Globes and everything. Man, I when know, did it, I know. That was on NBC, right, the, the presentation ceremony? Yeah, I mean, it has a billion <laughs> audience like the Oscars. I love the red cobweb portion of the show. Yeah. <laughs> Just they're strutting out with their finery, their silky finery. (laughs) They make their own clothing. It's so cool. That sounds like a nightmare, actually. (laughs) Just all these spiders parading. Let's ask the obvious question, what the hell is this? Um, (laughs) Well, every year the society picks a spider of the year, sorry, a European spider of the year. Um, It's very Eurocentric. And um, the winner was the large cave spider. That is Meta Minardi. Italian. Yeah, I mean, probably, (laughs) probably. I mean, Uh it's a really good-looking spider. Do they have a calendar that comes with this every year? (laughs) Um, They don't have a calendar per se, but they do also award a cave animal of the year. Um, Okay. So this is kind of like a joint crowning um, because it also won cave animal of the year. Wow! Wow. So it's a sweet. Yeah. Yeah, it's It's a a a double crown. Big deal. This will be the only award Daniel Day Lewis does not win this year. Yeah. Uh, Ray Hunt, <laughs> spiders freak me out, so thanks but no thanks for that small talk. Thank you. Bye-bye. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is a water fountain that shoots out booze. That would be weird to have at your workplace. That was, yeah, but fun. First, the history part. This week, back in 1905, a South African miner unearthed a royal treasure. Your dinner party guest probably won't know what it was. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. You know when you find a lucky penny? Multiply that by 40 billion, and you've got Frederick Wells. Frederick was a manager at Premier Diamond Mine in South Africa, so he was pretty used to seeing sparkly things. But on January 25, 1905, he spotted something glinting in the mine wall that attracted even his attention. A chunk of shimmering rock weighing almost a pound and a half. He figured it was a piece of glass or something. It turned out to be something. 
the largest raw gem quality diamond in history, over 3,000 carats. By way of comparison, the next largest ever found was a puny few hundred carats. The mine's owner, Sir Thomas Cullinan, modestly named the diamond after himself and sold it to the South African government, which then gave it to England's King Edward VII as a very nice birthday present. They shipped it to him on a boat, guarded by armed detectives, or at least that's what they let the world think. Actually, that diamond was fake. They sent the real one by registered mail. England hired Amsterdam's best diamond cutter to cleave the Cullinan stone into smaller gems. After studying it for days, he made a special blade for the job, hammered it into the stone, and the tool broke. So he took a deep breath, tried again with a second blade, and the diamond split perfectly, at which point the Dutchman fainted. The biggest gem cut from the Cullinan diamond ended up in the scepter with the cross, one of Britain's crown jewels. Altogether, the Cullinan stones are worth an estimated 400 million bucks. So that was the history. Now for the drink to serve with it. I'm on the line with De Villiers Hemans. He is a food and beverage manager with the Library Bar in Johannesburg, South Africa, in the same region as the premier diamond mine, which is now called the Cullinan Diamond Mine. De Villiers, what drink did that story inspire you to make? Well, Rico, uh, I decided to make a cocktail up that's something sparkling, something with champagne. Um, obviously, just to give the effect of the richness and wealth that comes with uh, the association of the diamond. Of course, champagne cocktail is all too appropriate. Yes, definitely. It's called the sparkling diamond cocktail. Okay, what's in this thing? It starts with the base of a vanilla liqueur, preferably uh, Galliano Vanilla is, is one of the liqueurs that I prefer to use. All right, well, my last name being Galliano, I, I totally approve. Oh, well, definitely. I agree with you there. <laughs> um, and then also adding about 20 milliliters of cranberry juice. Right. And then freshly squeezed lime as well, about two teaspoons. Oh, very tart. And then sugar syrup. All right. And then also adding about 80 milliliters of champagne, obviously French, either Louis Ruiz Cristal or Dom Perignon Blanc. Does it uh, does it have to be French? Why is it obviously French? South Africa does have a uh, a wine country, a, a pretty famous one. Do you guys produce champagne? We do um, have our own sparkling wines as well that we do in South Africa. For this drink, if you're gonna if you're gonna put it together with a Cullinan diamond, <laughs> I would take the most expensive product that you can find to put it together. All right. For this, we're using the French champagne, and then what? Serve it in a champagne flute glass. And then just garnish the rim of the champagne flute, dipping it in sugar as well, which will create a nice crystal-like diamond rim around the glass as well. Oh, nice. Not a diamond garnish, though. You're not going to put, like, crushed diamonds on it. Uh, unfortunately, they're not that easy to find. <laughs> All right. But to keep with the theme, you should sell it for $400 million bucks anyway, okay? I, I, would, uh, I would put a suggested selling price of about <laughs> close to that. So, Brendan, just to reiterate, uh-huh. that miner found the world's biggest diamond, turned it over to his boss, who then named it after himself. <laughs> yeah. You know? You're welcome, boss. Yeah. If I found <laughs> 400 million bucks at the office, uh-huh. you can be damn sure the Frank Stanton Studios would be the Rico Galliano Studios. <laughs> Immediately. Can I get a diamond microphone when that happens? Yes, you oh, can. Cool. Folks, we've got so many cocktail recipes on our website. Um, one of them is probably named after you. Go check it out there at dinnerpartydownload.org.
So we've had a drink, but this dinner party can't really get started without some music to play. For that, we turn to Jimmy Cliff. He's been singing reggae hits for 40 years, including the title track of the classic movie The Harder They Come, in which he also starred. This weekend, 110 million people or so will hear his voice in a Volkswagen Super Bowl ad covering the Partridge Family theme song, Come On, Get Happy. Of course. (laughs) Uh, This week, he made us happy by giving us this playlist of dinner party tunes. Hi, blessed love. This is Jimmy Cliff. In case you don't know who that is, I desire you say, the harder they come, the harder they fall. <laughs> Good to be with you all. So, okay, here's my list of songs that I would play at a dinner party. Um, there are some of my favorite people that I grew up with who were really inspiring to me. Come on, baby, and be my guest. Come join the party. First song is the Fats Domino, Be My Guest. And I love this song because the first time I performed to an audience bigger than what I would perform to in school was I performed the Fats Domino song, a cappella. And that song was Be My Guest. I heard Fats Domino on the radio in Jamaica when I was a, was a little kid. At nights, we could pick up radio in New Orleans, and uh, that's how I heard Fats Domino on the radio there. I love the sound. The beat just was just like popping right through the radio. Well, the next song I'd play would be uh, Sam Cooke, A Change Has Gotta Come. As a child... They used to put on Sam Cooke's song on the jukebox and say, sing along with it. <laughs> and I sing along with it, they would give me coke. I was born by the river in a little tent. Oh, and just like the river, I've been running ever since. Ever since, it's been a long Change gonna come. Well, you know, a coke at that time was a great thing. <laughs> it's been too hard living, but I'm afraid to die. So Sam Cooke is also very inspirational for me. One of the great voices. Beyond the sky, it's been a long Okay, there's another song I'd play at a dinner party is, uh, I would play Ruby Soho. Well, Ruby Soho is a rancid song, and uh, on my new album, I've done a cover version of it. Both versions are really good. Well, that song is a song that I identify with so well because um, it speaks about a touring musician who has to leave his family. And, you know, the sadness of leaving your family all the time. Your family's there in the distance. You're waving goodbye to them. Destination unknown. So whether it's reggae or rap or rock and roll or country... I like to, I listen to everything, yeah. 
at a dinner party, I'd play reggae music. Reggae music is a song from my new album. Reggae music gonna make me feel good. Reggae music gonna make me feel all right. That's a great one for the party. That song is kind of really telling my story and kind of the story of reggae from the beginning up to this time, 2013. So it's compact four decades in like a four and a half minute song. 1962, Orange Street, Kingston, Jamaica. I sang my song for Leslie Kong. He said, let's go record it in the style of ska. So we did the tracking to the Beverly's on Star back in Reggae music gonna make me feel good. Reggae music gonna make me feel all The guest list from reggae legend Jimmy Cliff. His new album is called Rebirth. The greatest voice, right? So nice. I love it. Like, forget a Super Bowl ad. I want him to do the play-by-play of the (laughs) Super Bowl. Be like, blessed love, Ray Lewis. I would... I might even watch that Super Bowl. Maybe. All right, coming up, I get chastised by Zero Dark Thirty actress Jessica Chastain. You have to be very nice to your mother. Apologies and more when the Dinner Party Download continues. This is an encore broadcast of the Dinner Party Download. It first aired in February. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Later, Pulitzer-winning funny man Dave Barry answers your etiquette questions. But first, it's time to meet our guest of honor. Yes, and this week it's Jessica Chastain. Roger Ebert called her one of the finest actors of her generation. She made a splash in 2011 when she starred in seven films, Jeez. including Terrence Malick's Tree of Life and The Help for which she got an Oscar nomination. Good year. Yeah, and she's nominated again this year for her role in the military thriller Zero Dark Thirty. So when we met, I asked her if she was getting red carpet fatigue. Last year, I was so shocked. I kept saying during the press about, well, this will never happen in my career again. It's the best year of my life. I can't believe everything that's happened. I'm nominated for an Oscar. (laughs) And then a year later, I'm nominated for an Oscar. I just, this year, though, I can honestly say it's not going to happen next year. Really? Well, who knows? I mean, you. Well, I, mean, I guess you know what you're in. <laughs> no, I'm not knocking the films that I'm in. I'm just saying that like it would be way too weird. It would be gauche. Yeah. So I was reading. Uh, I was rereading Bob Dylan's autobiography for some reason this weekend, and at one point he talks about uh, the actor Tony Curtis is talking to him, and and he's like, Tony Curtis once told me that fame is an occupation in itself. Uh, and it occurs to me that 2011 was your big break year, but now you're kind of a celebrity. And do you see it as a different occupation? Or? You know, I keep going back and forth of being in denial of it. I don't really see myself as a celebrity, and I know that I am, because I know that I'm in magazines, I'm on the cover of magazines. And, and You're on this show talking to me. Yes, I'm talking to you. But part of me wonders, because I don't really share a lot about my personal life, and I wonder if because of that it makes me not really a movie star. Does that make sense? Um, well, last week you ruled the box office with your two movies, Zero Dark Thirty and the horror movie Mama. You left Arnold Schwarzenegger in the dust. That's kind of celebrity power level. Well, oh gosh. Um, you know, it, I, I did Mama because it was right after Tree of Life came out and I noticed immediately I was getting typecast as the perfect mother because of that movie. I totally wanted you to be my mom when I saw it. <laughs> I tell you, when I have kids and they start, you know, saying th- talking back to me, I'm going to say, "You sit down. You watch the Tree of Life." 
and then you tell me what a bad mother I am. For, um, those, for those who don't know, you play um, a wonderful mother in Terrence Malick's movie, Tree of Life. Also, I should say, Mom, I didn't mean that. No, yes, you have to be very nice to your mother. I will. I am. <laughs> so let's talk about Zero Dark Thirty. It's a movie about the killing of Osama bin Laden. You play Maya, a CIA agent who tracks down Osama. When you're given a script based on recent events that's fresh in the minds of so many people, is that restrictive or inspiring? No, it's very inspiring. I had three months before shooting to learn everything, I, as much as I could about this woman. But she is an undercover agent in the CIA, so I couldn't meet her. You've never met her? She hasn't secretly like texted you or something? No, man. Nope. She's, she's doing her job. And the kind of amazing thing I'm really, really pleased with is there's been some articles, like the Washington Post had an article where the journalist talked to colleagues of hers, and it really matches up to what we've played. I mean, the more research um, this this gentleman from the Washington Post found, he found that she was not popular. She is not popular in the CIA. She was actually passed over for promotion because she um, doesn't make a lot of friends, and if someone's wrong, she will tell them. And so when I read it, it was after our movie came out, I thought, that's what we were playing. <laughs> it's, it's kind of incredible. Uh, I hope, I mean, of course, I, I don't want her to be discovered because I think she's a genius at her job and I feel safer knowing she's out there. But if, by chance, in the future, she ever quits the CIA, I'd love, I, I hope she writes a book someday and I'd love to read it and meet her. You won a Golden Globe for your performance, uh, and during your acceptance speech, you thanked the movie's writer, Mark Bowl for writing a, quote, strong, capable woman who stands on her own. Are you hopeful that the success of this movie will inspire other writers to kind of write the same character? Listen, I've been given a lot of great female characters. What shocked me so much about Zero Dark Thirty is this is a woman who's defined by her work and not her love interest. And that, to me, is a very strange thing to see in cinema. It doesn't mean I always want to play those characters. Because, no, no, sure. Yeah, I want to play all kinds of women. But I realized that it's something I'm not used to seeing. Uh, but I think it's a, such a great representation of, and gen of this generation of women. You know, when we first screened the film, my very first day of press, and I haven't heard it since, a lot of the journalists were asking me why I didn't have a love interest. Really? Yeah, and I and I was so shocked by the question because you know, yeah, sure, it would've been fun, like Maya hooks up with a Navy SEAL, or you know, but it wasn't the story that Mark and Catherine had found with Maya. The whole idea is this character becomes a nothing. That's the point of her. I mean, to be a woman in the CIA, she's been trained to be unemotional and analytically precise, so she has to show up, be in these difficult circumstances, hide her emotions. And if they had added a fake love interest, it would have gotten rid of the idea that this woman needed to have a fanatical behavior to catch a fanatic. Well, it's time for me to ask our two standard questions. And the first one is, what question are you tired of being asked in interviews? Okay, this is going to be a bit silly. But the question I get asked over and over again is, <laughs> what's it like kissing Brad Pitt? Wait, so you in Tree of Life, where yeah. you played his wife and you kissed Brad Pitt? Yeah, and it wasn't even like that deep of a kiss. It was just like a, you know, a normal husband and wife kiss at the end of the movie. And for the longest time, I would be having interviews talking about 
the idea of nature versus grace and this beautiful film that Terrence Malick made. And everyone would ask me about kissing Brad Pitt. <laughs> and I just thought, wow, okay, I understand where your mind is. So our second question is, tell us something we don't know. Can it can be a fact about you or it can be kind of an interesting fact about the world. Uh, this is really hard, actually. I don't know if this is true, uh, but they told me that a pig is as smart as a two-year-old. Really? Pigs are the smartest animals. That's why like people should have them as pets, um, because they're smarter than dogs, and a pig is as smart as a two-year-old kid. I was also told that they sunburn. Two-year-olds? No, well, yes, and pigs. And two-year-olds also like to wallow in mud. Yes, they do. And Rico, of course, there's been a lot of discussion about the depiction of torture in Zero Dark Thirty. It's definitely controversial. Yeah. That is true. Some say that the movie implies torture was instrumental in capturing bin Laden, yep. whereas many government officials say it wasn't. Jessica doesn't think the movie is in any way pro-torture. Yeah, and we thought her ideas and the topic were too important to edit for time for this show. You can listen to that part of the conversation online. It's at dinnerpartydownload.org. Eavesdrop. Canadian writer Juji Gartner is known for her dark comic skewerings of modern life. Her story collection, Better Living Through Plastic Explosives, was shortlisted for Canada's highest fiction prize. Today we overhear her read an artful passage. Hi, my name is Juji Gartner. I'm going to read a bit from a story called Floating Like a Goat, or What We Talk About When We Talk About Art. It's a story in the form of a letter from a mother of a grade one girl to her teacher telling her that she isn't too fond of the way the teacher is teaching art. Dear Miss Subaranium, It may strike you as ridiculous, as it did my husband, that I could lose several nights sleep over the fact that Georgia is not yet meeting expectations in art. It's only art, my husband told me. She's only in grade one. But lose sleep I did, and in fact I am now in such a deeply caffeinated fugue state that I fear my letter to you will come across as intemperate. That is not my intent. This is a defense not of my daughter's abilities, rather of art itself. Your penchant for feathered dreamcatcher earrings and tight sequin t-shirts bearing the names of various headbanger acts has not gone unnoticed among the parents. My husband, in particular, seems more inclined to pick up our daughter this year. I take it you may think this gives you a somewhat free-spirited or bohemian air. A free-spirited woman does not make girls and boys form separate lines before they can enter the classroom. She does not restrict conversation during snack time. And she most certainly does not insist that when six-year-old children draw people or animals, their feet must be touching the ground. When my daughter informed me of this rule, I couldn't suppress a snort. I guess she's never heard of Chagall, I said to Georgia, trying to sound offhand. Georgia, ever curious, wanted to know more, so I hauled out my dusty gardener's art through the ages to convey the intensity of vision and the infectious joie de vivre of Chagall's work. Georgia was most taken with the goats, floating, soaring, violin-playing goats. I wish I could fly, she said, more pensively than her tender age warrants. Do you suppose we could purchase posters of La Bas d'Ange or a box set of eight Chagall greeting cards online today if daydreamy little Mark Chagall had been in your grade one classroom, Miss Subaranian? Just a thought. Your feet on the ground dictum is just the starting point. 
There is also your off-stated desire that children make their crayon strokes in one direction and one direction only, putting cross-hatching on the same criminal level as giving a classmate a wedgie, and snipping the erasers off the ends of their pencils so they're forced to confront their mistakes. I won't even go there right now. Perhaps you come from a troubled home or even a troubled country, if your last name is any indication. It is not in my nature to pry, but your quest for order appears to me a manifestation of an obsessive need to wield complete control over your small fiefdom. The word martinet comes to mind. How am I, as a parent, to know that an ill-timed scrawl outside the lines won't trigger medieval forms of punishment? How am I to ascertain that my child is safe in your classroom with its almost pulpotish rules of behavior? I hope you understand, Miss Suberanian, that thwarted artists can be anywhere. There is artistry to George's rages, to my husband's carefully cultivated philistinism, and even to your straining t-shirts with their incoherent stage heroes and faux satanic symbols. There is an artistry to how my dentist scales my bicuspids. Yes, he does his own scaling. I think he could help you with your overbite. I really do. I'm willing to share. You only have to say the word. My own surrealist masterpiece is framed above the bidet to my husband's discomfort, a reminder of how much has been lost and how much has been gained, and of the almost incalculable distance between the two things. Just let me ask you this, Miss Suberanium. Can we honestly say any of us really have our feet on the ground? Most sincerely, Anne, George's mother. Writer Zhuzhi Gartner with an abridged version of her story, Floating Like a Goat. And you're listening to The Dinner Party Download. Sincerely, American Public Media. And now, it's time for the main course, where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, the food. And Brendan, it is Super Bowl time. Uh-oh. So we, I, what? Dude, we talked about chicken wings last year, so no <laughs> I'm, more. I'm not going to talk about chicken wings. Okay. Uh, in fact, I'm going to talk about a restaurant. It's here in L.A. that is serving a special Super Bowl Sunday menu that is entirely meat-free. Whoa. Yeah. What? Isn't that why we left England? <laughs> <laughs> it does seem really communist. But I was intrigued, so I went over to Susan Feniger's Street. They specialize in street food from around the world. And the first thing I asked chef and co-owner Sasha Alger was, meatless Super Bowl food, why did you come up with this oxymoron? Well, you know, I think it's we are focused on doing a lot of veggie and vegan foods here at the restaurant. We're not exclusively vegetarian, but we do have a strong veggie following and when you go out there there's so little available to vegetarians and vegans even more so and so we were just trying to think of you know it's sunday it's super bowl i'm not a football fan but tons of people are here's the thought you're you're cooking a super bowl (laughs) meal for and you're not a football fan i come from football stock family stock so i i appreciate the super bowl but i myself will be cocktailing instead but um it's so hard to find just those common foods that you want grub food to eat on a day like super bowl and we wanted to offer that all right well the first thing that i saw on this that interests me is that you have a three bean chili dog i have never had a veggie hot dog that stood up to a real one what is your claim to being able to pull it off trial and error 
<laughs> That's our claim. I don't know. I think, you know, one of the things we've been playing with is seitan, which is a vital wheat gluten product. And what comes from non-vegans making vegan food is we screw it up all the time. And in those screw-ups, we happen to make different flavors and different textures that come about. And this was one of those things. So it is seitan-based. It actually came about from us testing something for a Chinese dish, and it ended up being the base for this hot dog. So I'm hearing you talking about seitan. We're talking about beans. To me, my theory is the reason why people eat so badly at the Super Bowl is that it is our way of punishing ourselves in the ways the players are getting punished on the field so that at the end of the day, we're kind of like rolling out of the Super Bowl party all in pain and slightly sick. This is not going to happen with these. Can you really say that this is Super Bowl food if it doesn't hurt me? (laughs) There's a common misconception that because it's vegan, it's healthy for you. And I would say that these dishes, even though they are meat-free, are definitely nowhere near healthy. I don't think a seven-layer dip, whether it's vegetarian or not, is going to be anything but junk food. It is not Weight Watchers. <laughs> right. All right. Let us try one of these dishes. This will be the spicy black bean veggie burger. You want to try that out? Yeah, we're going to make you a veggie burger right now. All right, we're in the kitchen, and I'm standing next to the wood-fired stove. Is anything on the menu done in the wood-fired stove? That seems kind of Super Bowl-y, like fire. I don't actually think so. All right, well, we'll... It's ma- all fried. Fried and grilled. Well, that's good. Maybe, maybe I'll take one of the fried and grilled things and throw it into the fire for a second just to make it more macho. Pushing me towards the unhealthy, you know. Sorry. All right, so you're taking... So but- this is Earth Balance. Earth Balance is a, is a vegan butter, so I'm spreading the bread with that so we're going to get a nice golden crust on the outside of the bread. Oh, man, so this is going to be a burger on grilled bread kind of. Yeah, it's on griddled sourdough bread. And the, the patty, which has been pre-prepared, that's, uh, I'm assuming that's all like homemade. What's in there? Lots of uh, whole black beans, corn, peppers. The base is a brown rice and farro base and tons of spices. And this is a, an award-winning veggie burger. <laughs> I don't know award-winning. It just kicks <laughs> I think we pay attention to the texture and the flavor a lot. All the ingredients are spread throughout the bun. You know, they're not one of those places where you get the burger and there's like a little tiny dollop of sauce in the middle and like nothing else has flavor. So it's really saucy. It's messy. It's everything you want a burger to be. Why is it that we like goopy, messy things for Super Bowl watching? It's like you're going to be gazing up at a television instead of down at your plate, and yet we want the stuff that's going to fall all over if we're not careful. I don't know. I want goopy, gloppy, messy food all the time, not just for Super Bowl, so... So tough. So tough. (laughs) So we cook our patties in a cast iron pan. That gives it this nice outside crunch and sear, so it gets really, really crispy on the outside and soft on the inside. I can see it. It actually is looking surprisingly burgery, and a moment ago it looked very vegetal. And you were putting a sauce on there. Is that a vegan sauce? This is a vegan mayonnaise, and we season it just with a little lime, salt, and pepper. Then we use smashed avocado and that Singapore hot sauce. So it's definitely juicy, definitely messy. All right. So here we are. We've got this burger. Already my fingers are covered with goop. (laughs) Here we go. Wow. It is truly delicious. It has a sort of... um, Mexican feel to it. It's got ton of cumin in it. It's a mishmash of Asian and Latin. Actually, it has no place anywhere, but we love those flavor combinations. And then if you eat it in front of the Super Bowl, it becomes instantly American. Right. So, Brendan, honestly, crazy good veggie burger. Sounded like it. 
It was awesome. And it does sound like street might be a good place to have a drink on Super Bowl Sunday because I asked Sasha who she favored in the game. Uh-huh. And she said, I'm rooting for Bloody Marys. Oh, yeah. I love that. They're the lady. New York team, right? Yeah. <laughs> Their mascot's a hangover. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's ugly. <laughs> Folks, we're going to take a break. Coming up, advice from humorist Dave Barry and punk rock history from Joy Division's Peter Hook when the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Later, we hear a brand new tune from The Strokes. And coming up, we speak with Peter Hook, bassist of revered late 70s post-punk band Joy Division, about his new memoir, Unknown Pleasures, inside Joy Division. But first, we venture into a different sort of unknown territory. That's for sure. It's time for our weekly etiquette segment. Each week, you send us your questions about how to behave. And here to take them very seriously is Pulitzer Prize-winning writer Dave Barry. In addition to a few thousand syndicated humor articles, he's written a lot of popular books, many set in and around his, well, I was going to say native Miami, but you're a native of New York. Right. I grew up in New York, but I, I moved to Miami in, in 1986 from the United States yeah. and have been there ever since. <laughs> Do you get a second passport? That's you nice. need nothing. No, we don't need no papers. In Miami. As soon as you get there, they give you a driver's license, no matter who you are, no matter what age you are, <laughs> no matter what species you are. Four-year-old recurring drunk driver, here you go. It doesn't make Welcome to Miami. Here's your Happy Meal, and here's your driver's license. Sounds like paradise. Um, a lot of your books are set in Miami including this new book. Yeah. Um, Which we should note is aptly entitled Insane City. Let's talk about it first, and let's ask why Miami hasn't kicked you out of the city. No, but think, that's the thing about Miami. Has, nobody in Miami has any civic pride. You know, it's <laughs> not like all the other cities in the world where if you say, oh, man, it's ridiculous there. They go, wait a minute, no, there's some, we have a good museum. We have a, You never hear that crap from Miami people. Like, everybody goes, oh, yeah, it's really screwed up here. <laughs> it's like, I can't believe I'm still here. We Okay, yeah. there's a true story that just today I read in the Miami Herald. A, a girl won a science fair competition there, and her science fair project was cocaine. <laughs> She, she, it, I'm not kidding. Her father is a drug a- agent or something of some kind, and her project was how drug-sniffing dogs find cocaine. And so to do the project, her dad put cocaine in various rooms, and the dogs chase it around. And, she's, and so, like, but the explanation they give, it's like, well, there's no rule against it in the science fair thing. And we checked with the dad, and he said, no, the do- she never, yeah. the 10-year-old girl never touched the cocaine. Was her, so dad, was <laughs> was her dad Tony Montano from Scarface? Yes, I know, yeah. yeah and I got to say, I just want to say that's the one thing we in Miami do object to is Al Pacino's accent in, oh. in Scarface, which is the worst Cuban accent. <laughs> Anyone can do a better Cuban accent than that. So well, it's he, on the record, and I know he listens. Al, I know you're listening. Oh, man. He's a big NPR listener. Yeah. That's yeah. right. There goes his donation to public radio. Yeah. Thanks, Dave Barry. <laughs> as well. Uh, he was hoping for the mug this year. <laughs> Al would. He would throw it against the wall every year. That's why he keeps re-upping. <laughs> so clearly your book is not going to rise to the level of the actual reality of Miami. No, no. As Carl Heisen Florida novelist Carl Heisen says that nothing you ever can possibly make up about South Florida will not be exceeded the next day in the Miami Herald by some (laughs) actual event. Well, we're glad that you keep trying. And uh, clearly, you're therefore the guy to answer our listeners' etiquette questions, right? Obviously, I was born to do it. All right. So let's let's get to it. Our first question is from Michaela in Seattle. And Michaela writes, what is the etiquette behind being talked to by that, quote, crazy person on the bus? particularly if that person is sitting right next to you and proceeds to tell you their life story and how many cookies they've eaten that day. Is it rude to just get up and move to another seat? Please note, I am not the crazy person. (laughs) 
Well, I guess the, the first question you always ask yourself is, is this Charlie Sheen? And <laughs> if it is, and I think you should pay attention. You owe him, yeah. you owe him that. You know? But if it's not, um, it's a good question. And I've had this happen to me. And I think the, probably the best thing to do is become like an Amway or Herbalife distributor. Oh, oh out crazy them. Don't, yeah, or yeah. just say, <laughs> thank, you know, it is so great to be talking to you because I have an opportunity. <laughs> you might, you know. And just, I like that. So you're basically like jiu-jitsu. You like yeah, use yeah. that opportunity yeah. to kind of come back at them. Be one of those people who actually needs people to talk to about something. But then you're going to end up talking to a crazy person. But you might sell them Amway products. <laughs> oh. ah. You can make your bus fare back. There you go. Uh, all, right. all right. So, Michaela, there's your answer, and you also got a new career out of it. Um, this question comes from Tim in Lexington, Massachusetts. What do I do when someone who is clearly a moron <laughs> is walking in front of me slower than anyone has a God-given right to? That's the first part of the uh-huh. question. Second part is also regarding Miami. Really? Why so many clubs? So. <laughs> well, those are two questions that are often put together. Um <laughs> Well, the, I agree about the people walking in front of you. I, and I'm not going to say that, that the person asking this question, Tim in Lexington, it never occurred to him to just go around. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, before yeah. we call the person in front of us a moron, we might <laughs> think, hmm, if I just step aside here a That's little. That's true. I could, assuming you can't do that. For some reason, you're in a very narrow. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Lexington has these, like, sidewalks. They're known for it. The city of tiny <laughs> Very narrow sidewalks. sidewalks. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, they have big cars. Lexington is Viking for narrow sidewalk, actually. The word <laughs> Lexington. I, but I have I this is my mother in law, this person is describing. She seriously, <laughs> and I, I hope to God she's not listening, but my mother in law is the slowest walking human being on the face here. You know, like so presumably if I take two steps, she should be two steps behind me, but she'll be like three steps behind me. <laughs> even though I've only taken two. There's something yeah. in like the space time continuum where everything around her time actually goes backward. Uh-huh. And she mo- That's why you look so young. Yeah. I, <laughs> <laughs> and so the answer is Tim in Lexington. I don't know. Really, don't know what you could do. I, but I agree with you. It's very annoying when people walk yeah. really, really slow. You, we want to say, why are you even pretending to walk? Why don't you just yeah. admit you're standing? You're basically standing still, or kind of going sideways, like a like a is it what a weeble? Like, but wait, do people walk in Miami, or is it like L.A. where nobody walks? Pro- yeah, yeah, you'd be crazy to walk. Okay. I mean, okay. if you walked, the snakes could get you. The pythons. <laughs> so, so let's move to the Miami part of the question then. Oh, why so many clubs? Yeah. I know that he's right. There are a ridiculous number of clubs. And I do know I once did a story for the Miami Herald about the club scene in Miami. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it was brutal work because I went with our club reporter. We had an actual club reporter at the time whose job was to cover the club scene. Her name was Tara Solomon called the Queen of the Night. All and right. Parents must be proud of that. I, I, said, yeah. Tara, I called her. I said, Tara, I, I want to do a story in the club. So she'd go, OK, you have to meet me at whatever it was at 1. And it was like – Turned out that was 1 a.m. That's when she started. <laughs> so every night I would go over there, and I would go to, from club to club with Tara. And every single one, there'd be giant bouncers not letting a lot of people in. And we'd go right by because I was with Tara Solomon, the queen of, course, of, the, queen night. of the night. She's the queen. Go in there, and there is music that sounds like this. <laughs> and, you know, it's lights flashing and dark, and you could pay like $38 for a vodka, you know, and sit yeah. there. <laughs> For like 20 minutes with, you know, with these awesome. weird club characters, unable to say or hear yeah. anything. To, and then, then Tara would go, okay, it's time to go. We're going to go to another club. And, you know, so we'd walk outside, go through the past another line. And, this is why there's so many clubs, because you need time in between each one to regain your hearing. I, or, or here's the other possibility. It's all just one club. And they just sort of take you around <laughs> just take a you different around. entrance. Yeah. It's the same. Like, it's like it's you're like, kidnapped. It's like the Truman <laughs> Show of clubs. Yeah. Wow. Nice. I thought they were, Tim was referring to like the 
Ornithology Club, the, uh, the, <laughs> the Rock the and Gem club. Collectors. I thought Miami had a lot of clubs because there's a lot of old people retire there. And... <laughs> sure. No, that's actually a mi- Miami doesn't have old people. They drive into buildings. I've never <laughs> oh, lived. Seriously, God. you have never seen a town where 83-year-olds drive into buildings more often than not. They, they, they always live because they're only going one mile an hour in their gigantic Oldsmobile. Right? They don't really get killed. It's your mother-in-law driving. They, exactly, yeah. But they end up like in the salad bar. I mean, they go way into the club. And I would say, well, he thought his foot was on the brake when, in fact, it was on the like, I say, okay, but how long does it take you to yeah. figure that out? Yeah, You're right. only going yeah. one mile an hour. <laughs> Can't you say, wait a minute, I'm entering yeah. the building now. Maybe they us. should remove the accelerators from their car. They don't use them anyway, really. (laughs) (laughs) All right. You know, I am really almost one of those people, so I should not be making fun of them. (laughs) All right. So, Tim, that answers your question. Yeah, I think we got Tim squared away. Yeah, he's good. Nice. Tim, wider sidewalks is the answer for you. Move to a city that's got some width to its sidewalks. Dave Barry, thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave. I think we did. We helped a lot of people. Dave Barry, his new book is called Insane City. It is set in where else? Miami. If you want your etiquette question sort of answered, send it to us via our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. It's time for Chattering Class. This is the part of the show where an expert schools us on a dinner party-worthy topic. Today, the subject is the seminal English rock band Joy Division. They existed for only four years, from 1976 to 1980, but their dark poetic music has influenced countless bands and remains popular today. Our teacher is the band's bassist Peter Hook, who just wrote a memoir called Unknown Pleasures Inside Joy Division. And Peter, since for some people Joy Division is an unknown pleasure, if you could (laughs) tell us about this band you were in when you were younger. Wow. Uh, Well, I mean, it changed my life. Um, it really did. And the, the strangest thing was it was how fast we progressed. I mean, we started in punk, yeah, uh, aping Sex Pistols, to very, very quickly establishing its own identity and turning into very adult, we'd have to say, uh, music and very individual music. Yeah. Joy Division were a very unusual band in that the each instrument seemed to have a sort of very... Um, distinctive individual role in sure. the music. And when it came together, it created a wonderful backdrop for Ian Curtis to put his wonderful lyrics. So one of the things I found remarkable about your book was how much fun you guys were having. Fun isn't a word people usually associate with Joy Division. Uh, The music was dark and intense. Ian Curtis, your front man, is usually portrayed as a tortured soul. And yet, in this book, there's a lot of joy. Tell me about that. I I think the interesting thing and one of the, the spurs to do the book was that I always felt that there were two sides to Joy Division, and yet there's only one side, which is the dark, gloomy, mm-hmm. industrial, very serious side that ever gets quoted, mm-hmm. uh, and the sort of deification of Ian, mm-hmm. who was a lovely guy. The lead he singer really Ian Curtis. Was, yeah. Yeah, uh, a great guy, very, very good at his job. So in addition to balancing out the gloomy perception of Joy Division, your book also spends a lot of time on the nuts and bolts of being in a band, Uh, You guys came from a working-class neighborhood, and what I found interesting was you guys actually worked. You held down day jobs for almost the entire existence of Joy Division. It was actually quite um, accepted in in those days that 
a music career was not something you did for security. Mm. It was felt to be very uh, decadent, uh, very frivolous, mm -hmm. uh, with no gravity at all. There was opportunity there, but it was always looked on to be somehow kind of uh, dark yeah. and seedy if you were in a group. Well, there's that great scene in the book where the police, you should tell the story, where the, you were the, you drove the van for yep. the band. Mm -hmm. It was your van. The clubs were always in the red light district. What happened was, was that at the time there was a, a mass murderer called the Yorkshire Ripper. And in old-fashioned policing, they were collecting licence plate numbers of people that visited these districts. Yeah. And my van, because I was driving the van for Joy Division, came up in about ten <laughs> districts, yeah. along with Stephen Morris's car. Your, your drummer, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so we both got questioned about being the Yorkshire Ripper. And I swear, when the guy knocked on my door... He must have thought, I've got him. <laughs> and I said, no, no, you, you, don't, you don't understand. I'm in a group. Yeah. All the clubs are in those districts, the red light districts yeah. of each city. Yeah. He was absolutely devastated. So let's talk about Ian Curtis. He was the lyricist and lead singer for the band, uh, a tragic hero to many due to his public struggle with epilepsy and his early death that prevented him from enjoying the success of the band. Tell us what he was like from your perspective. He was a very, very generous man. I remember meeting him at the uh, third Sex Pistols gig in Manchester and I was talking to him and he was, I thought, this is a really nice guy, very mild-mannered, very sweet. Mm. And then he turned round and on the back of his coat he had hate in orange fluorescent letters. And now if somebody had said to you while you were talking to him, what's this guy got on the back? Has he got three kittens? Yeah. You know, has he got a picture <laughs> of his gran? Yeah. Or something like that? You would not have imagined yeah. ever in the world yeah. that he had hate. So the Joy Division story ends when Ian hangs himself on the eve of what would have been your first U.S. tour. Throughout the book, you can see the things that are weighing on him, his, his unhappy marriage. He was having regular seizures on stage, triggered by his epilepsy. Now, you and the band would try to look after him and take care of him off stage, but you also say that you guys were too young and distracted to really take care of him properly. The strangest thing about his whole character was that he, he was very much, um, I suppose what you'd say would be a people pleaser. Hmm. He didn't want you to be upset by anything that he'd done. He was very, very nice and very, very accommodating. Now, the thing is, is that we were all worried. And you'd say to him, Ian, are you, are you OK? And he'd go, I'm absolutely fine. Now, the thing is, is a 21-year-old kid, you're going, oh, well, thank God for that. Yeah. And, you know, really, sense would have said, listen, he attempted suicide last week. Yeah. He was in a self-harming episode the week before. His marriage is breaking down. He's just had a child, now he's got a mistress. Really, common sense should have said to you, sure. regardless of whether he says he's OK or not, he needs looking after. But we were so young and so... Ah, that's brilliant. Because, you know, I was really worried about you. And he'd go, don't worry about me. I'm absolutely fine. And we go, thank God for that. So quickly, I want to ask you a question about your bass playing in Joy Division. I listened to a lot of this music while I was reading the book. And it's kind of notable how critical the bass is to the music. The vocal line often follows the bass riff. Where did you develop your three-fingered, rumbly, uh, riff-forward It's obviously a, a gift from God mainly inspired by the volume of Bernard's guitar when we used to practice, and the only way that I could hear myself was when I played high. Mm -hmm. As soon as I played high, Ian used to jump on it and go, oh, okay, that sounds great, do yeah. that, do that. Yeah. And literally every time we came to write, every rehearsal, he'd say, okay, 
one of them eye riffs, one of them eye riffs, come on. And I go, oh, yeah, of course, you know, because it was so wonderful to be for him to be so enthusiastic yeah. about what you were doing. And he turned to Steve and go, Steve, jungle drums. Bernard, <laughs> give us a lead line. I can see it like a crazy punk conductor. And there you had Joy Division. Enrico, Peter also told me that years after Joy Division, yeah. he found out that he was on the shortlist to play bass for the Rolling Stones. What? <laughs> I know, right? But what? he said, no, this is true. But he said that even if he had been asked, he wouldn't do it uh, yeah. because he just doesn't know how to play traditional bass. I, you know, I don't know. I could see him riffing on Paint It Black. Mm, that that song s- in particular, that I think. That makes sense. All right, folks, that is our encore broadcast of The Dinner Party Download for this week. We will be back next week with an all-new show. Till then, keep up with us on Twitter. We are Dinner Party DNLD. Jackson Musker is the assistant producer of The Dinner Party Download. Our interns are James Delahousey, Davey Kim, and Brittany Martin. Thanks also to Trent Wolby. Bill Lance was our engineer this week. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. And now before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. The Strokes never toured their March album Come Down Machine, but in their latest newsletter, which I guess we get around here, they announced a, quote, return to the scene in the new year. Till then, here's a bit of their tune, One Way Trigger. Bon appétit. Thanks for attending the Dinner Party Download. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. And- so my Cuban accent is bad, but my money's good, huh, public radio? Al. Say Al. hello to my little friend. Whoa, he's got a mug. Ow! <laughs>